This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. So today I'm going to talk about a subject I'm not terribly comfortable with, not being sort of an activist kind of person. I'm going to talk about war. Uh, I'm doing this for two reasons. First of all, I don't think we're going to have a Dharma talk for the next couple of weeks, and it just seemed kind of important that since we have this big, looming thing happening in um, Ukraine that didn't seem right to just kind of blow by it and never talk about it, so I felt um, sort of an obligation to talk about it. And also, this is kind of a Dharma talk for myself because it just seems like, you know, a couple of weeks into the war, I'm sort of forgetting about it. I've sort of pushed it off. It's kind of far away. It's not affecting my life. And I feel, uh, I don't feel good about that. That doesn't seem um, appropriate to just let it drift away and, and be just one more war that we've got out of you know, endless supply of them. So this Dharma talk's kind of for myself and maybe for some of you because I saw a few head noddings that other people are also forgetting, uh, forgetting what's happening. So um, to plunge myself into the horrors of war, uh, I reread a book that I read a long time ago, um, a book called At Hell's Gate by Claude Anshin Thomas. Oh, many people are familiar with him at all. He was actually here. Uh, uh, his book was written in 2004, so I think he was probably here on a book tour, and uh, we got to hear him. Did you hear him, Sherry? Yeah. I still remember him. Anyway, this, this is what the book looks like, and we have it in our library at Hell's Gate. It's a hard book to read. Uh, left me in a fairly black mood the day I read it. Um, but I'll talk a little bit about what he talks about, you know, just to refresh the horrors of war. Uh, he grew up in, actually he's one year younger than I am, and he grew up in my part of the world, which is northwest uh, Pennsylvania. And he actually, when he did go to college, he went to a college that was only seven miles from the college I went to. So I feel a certain, you know, sort of comradeship with him. He grew up in an uh, abusive home. His father was an alcoholic, and his mother was also very, very physically abused him. I was throwing him down the stairs one time with his bicycle, um, and not really knowing else what else to do with his life, he enlisted in uh, uh, the service at 18, and this would have been 1965. So. I think that's right near the beginning of the Vietnam War. And he actually asked to go to Vietnam, which, uh, which I guess you could do at that time, maybe because they hadn't made it, you know, they hadn't made people go there yet. It was just getting started. Uh, and he really talks very uh, vividly about his experiences, uh, not just uh, fighting, not just in combat, but also in, excuse me,
but also the very, very brutal, brutal training that he went through, being taught to kill, and how, how brutal that was and how he was treated. He was even urinated upon one time by one of his drill sergeants, you know, just humiliating, simply because he dropped his gun, you know, and, you know thing. So, I mean, um, um, this stuff was hard to read. Um, in the war, in the, in over in Vietnam, his first three months he'd killed over, he'd killed several hundred people, he said. Uh, he turned out to be a really good soldier. He got a whole lot of medals. Uh, he recited multiple incredibly horrific stories, and I'll tell you one of them at the risk of making somebody, I hope that doesn't make anybody feel too awful, but uh, after he was out of the war, he um, had um, he got he got married. He got a woman pregnant, and uh, he he didn't he he was honorable enough to want to get married because he mostly because he wanted to have a child, but this child, um, you know, baby, slept in the room with he and his wife, and he would the baby would wake up at night crying, and uh, he. He couldn't stand it. I mean, it was, he just could not stand to hear the baby crying and he'd leave the house. He'd have to, to do something. He just couldn't bear it. And he didn't know why. He didn't know why uh, this was, was happening to him. And his marriage ended very soon, you know, partly because of that. And uh, later on, when he had therapy, he uncovered a, a memory that had been suppressed that uh, his. Uh, he and his, you know, his war, his unit, his unit went into a village and pretty much wiped out the village, so that all was all that was left was a baby lying on the ground and it was screaming and crying, and um, so one of his uh, comrades picked up the baby and the baby had been booby trapped with a bomb and so all of most all of them were killed, and he says it's amazing that he, you know, was still alive. So awful, awful. All the things. Um, I suppose Vietnam was probably one of the one of the worst wars, but you know, just just. So uh, he came home from the war, you know, and after three years of this kind of trauma, he ends up in Newark Airport. Uh, and sees a beautiful woman coming towards him, and he's like. Oh, this is gonna. Oh, yeah, I've seen the picture of World War II. You know, veterans came back and women came up and kissed them, and that's what he was anticipating. This woman was a hippie, and she came up and spit on him. So then began a whole many years of a whole new kind of trauma that, um, uh, and, and isolation in, in, in his own country. Um, during this time here, uh, I'll quote something he says um, about uh, this, this time, uh, this long, you know, it was about 15 years after the war where he just lived in total misery. He was, you know, alcoholic. He was addicted to heroin at various times. He lived on the street. He couldn't hold a job. He couldn't maintain a relationship. At one point, here, this is his words. At one point, after I returned from Vietnam, I was living on the street. I was homeless and lost again in forgetfulness. 
If you had passed near me, you might have kicked me. You certainly would not have wanted to look at me. No one wants to look at this kind of desperation because when people looked at me, they saw a part of themselves that they would rather believe did not exist. Um, so up to the time this book was written, some quotes, some statistics he had in the book, so up to the time the book was written, more than 100,000 Vietnam vets had committed suicide. And 40 to 60% of the homeless population were Vietnamese vets. Um, that was in 2004. So I remember when he was here, I remember so clearly, I remember I was sitting over there, um, I, that's how I remember it. I can't even remember how we used to set up, but that's where I remember myself being. And somebody asked him after his talk, um, what, uh, what do you do about these uh, 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 homeless people that are you know, panhandling? What, what should we do? Should we give them money? You know what? He said, and he, I'll never forget, because I've, it's influenced the rest of my life, really. He said, well, you give them anything you can, but the most important thing to do is to look them in the eye and see them, because they don't get seen as he, as he uh, showed in this paragraph that I read. And I've always done that every time. I, I always make a point of looking and, and smiling or you know, making some kind of contact with, um, with homeless people, and I give them money. When, when I have it out, where I can, I try to keep it on my, you know, the um, console of my car, but, you know, so I try to do that when I can. But I've, I've got his, his advice is meant a lot to me. Well, then, uh, it, it does, his, his life does turn around. Obviously, since he came here and talked, he was still, he wasn't in this condition. Um, in uh, 1983, he started uh, getting into therapy, and he, and he went to AA, and he gave up his uh, poisons, and he even gave up things like meat and, um, you know, other things besides just drugs and alcohol. Uh, so he was on the mend. But still, never could sleep. I mean, uh, it's you know apparently. I mean, when you think about being taught to kill people and then having the memory of killing people, it has a tremendous effect, a very traumatic effect on people. But finally, in the early 1990s, he attended a retreat at the Omega Institute, which was run by Thich Nhat Hanh. Because Thich Nhat Hanh did these routinely. He'd been avoiding Tignahan. He didn't think he could face him because he was the enemy, and you know he'd been so heavily trained to um, you know, hate them, hate them, hate the Vietnamese, and depersonalize them. But he did go, and it was a huge turning point for him. He became very close to Tignahan, and uh, there's pictures in the book of him walking with Tignahan, you know, leading a, a you know a long walk. Because he became he became a great big peace walker. And um, uh, walked. Uh, he walked uh, across the United States at least once, and he walked from Texas along the border to California one time. And uh, he was really good at, at, at talking to people and meeting people, and you know, 
letting them, sharing his experiences with them. And he told one time story about walking along uh, the Texas border. He was always, they were always running into border patrol. The border patrol would always be armed. And uh, one border patrol agent asked him, um, what, um, can we help you, you know? And he said, well, I think we're all right. We have everything we need, but could you please take your hand off of your weapon? And the guy did, and you know, he had that kind of influence on people. Um, and he also did a walk from Auschwitz to uh, Vietnam. Uh, I'm not sure how long that is, but I think it's at least as far as it was across the United States. I'm not sure. Uh, and he was ordained by Bernie Glassman. Is, is that insignia on your Rakasu? Is that from Bernie Glassman's piece? Oh. It's related. It's Gimbo. Oh, okay. It's related. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So anyway, he created a foundation, the Zalto, Zalto Foundation, which is still alive. And I, I got online and looked at it yesterday and listened to him talking. He still he still gives talks every Sunday in the morning to general people, population, and in the evening to Vietnam vet, or not just Vietnam, any kind of vets. That's so he's, he's still um, active. All right, well, after I doused myself with a bit of realism about war and what it means to be at war, uh, I, uh, I um, just thought a little bit about what, what can we do, what do we do, what do we do, and how do we how do we keep remembering? And for myself, you know, the, the book was kind of the start. I found myself listening to news about the war this, this week, uh, you know, reading New York Times. And, um, you know, so I feel like it was helpful to get back into um, facing that. Um, I think that uh, I'm trying to set up some kind of little ritual that I'll do, you know, maybe when I put incense on my altar at home or when I bow my cushion here, maybe just dedicate my practice to the uh, war in Ukraine. Um, so that's so helpful. It says it's important that we don't ignore war and that in order, the reason, well, I guess one of the reasons we do try to not think about it too much is it's painful, it's scary, it's sad. Um, but meditators, if one of the things we learn through our meditation, of course, is to handle our fear and to handle our sadness and be able to face them. And I think that's really important to do in a time like this. It's not like there's any clear indication of anything we can actually do um, but things can come up, and if we're open to, if we're open to the fear, our fear and sadness around war, we might be ready to help with something. Who knows? Be ready for um, opportunities that arise. So it's important that we don't ignore war. It's important that we don't rationalize war away by just saying it's inevitable. You know, we can't always going to be wars. It's probably true that there probably will always be wars, but to just assume that is not helpful. 
to not perpetrate glorious stories about war, to not perpetrate the idea that war is a worthy distraction or something that gives people a reason for living. You know, you hear all these things. Or that war is great because it creates bonds with the, the good people, even though it is really nice, isn't it, right now, to hear about our Republicans and Democrats all being united in the Congress. It is kind of, it is nice, but that's not a, a rationalization for, for war. Or to be happy that war puts a lot of money into our, our government coffers and, and also helps create a lot of new technology. Or especially that war is necessary for self-defense against evil or for combating evil. So this list of things I got out from reading David Loy in David Loy's book called, I remember it all, uh, Money, Sex, War, Karma. He's got an essay in there called Why We Love War. So I think that uh, Claude Anshin uh, uh, Thomas's um, big um, push, you know, or big thing he talks about more than every, anything else is that it's important that we see in ourselves that we have the seeds of war in, in all of us. And that probably, if you're like me at least, you might even be in a daily war, <laughs> a war daily. There's always somebody to set myself up against. And uh, there's always somebody to, for me to think that I'm right and they're wrong, or I'm good and they're evil. It's important to get really familiar with what that feels like. For me, when I feel in my warlike states, when I feel my setting myself up, mostly I'm right and they're wrong. They made a big mistake and I don't even, maybe I only heard about it through email, but I assume that they're just totally, you know, totally bad. Um, when that happens to me, I get like, uh, I get, I, I get this feeling like that, that I've established a wall, that there's this big cinder block wall, and it, it's, not, it's not permeable at all. It's just this hard wall. I don't know if anybody recognizes that kind of feeling. But just, and there's just nothing you can do. I mean, nothing um, uh, peaceful that you can do in that situation. So it's important to sit and observe that wall. And, um, and to breathe and to feel, you know, fully the isolation that that wall um, gives, the, the feeling that you have. Because that's what's really great about us human beings, that if we can really feel the pain, if we can really feel what we're doing and what we're thinking, uh, our innate wisdom will start to work away, uh, work away at that and, and melt melt the wall. Or maybe I lash out in anger at somebody and actually do send that email that says that I'm angry. Um, and you can really feel the consequences of that afterwards.
So um, what about what about this good versus evil dichotomy that we all like to set set up? Uh, that we uh, the whole world is is uh, well anyway. I'll, I'll read some stuff that David Loy said because he's much more articulate than I am. So seeing the world primarily as a war between good and evil is one of our more dangerous delusions. In fact, the biggest cause of war, if not the only cause of war, is good versus evil. Here's what David Loy says about the karmic, or the karmic attitude towards good and evil. We can't know what is good until we know what is evil, and we can't feel that we are good unless we are fighting against evil. We can feel comfortable and secure in our own goodness inside only by attacking some evil outside of us. Fighting evil makes sense of the world. Bad guys are stereotypes because they play a predetermined role in our collective fantasy. We want to see them get beaten up. We enjoy it. Look at all our movies. The leaders who try to destroy evil by um, destroy evil usually end up creating more evil. I think it's always interesting. And David Boy talks about the Afghanistan war. Um, you know, George Bush versus Bin Laden. Um, Bin Laden was fighting evil when he masterminded 9-11. He saw the United States as evil, and I honestly, although I wouldn't have said this back in 2001, I honestly can't blame him. Um, Bin Laden's religion was anti- um, materialism and the U.S. was spewing consumerism around the world and consumerism was our religion, still is our religion, maybe even more so. And we were creating all kinds of havoc in the Middle East just because of our greed for oil. So, I don't know, I have to say I sort of sympathize with Bin Laden. He saw U.S. as evil and so then of course George Bush saw him as evil and we all saw him as evil. And uh, isn't that kind of crazy? Um, I think about the expression the the war the war on the war on terror. <laughs> so um, yeah, Buddhism breaks the word evil down. I mean, the, the word evil is used in Buddhism. After all, it's our, it's our first precept, right? Uh, I vow to do no evil. But Buddhism breaks the word evil down into uh, greed, hate, and delusion. And this is pretty smart, actually, because I think most of us can see our greed, and we can see our hatred, and we can see our delusion. But if somebody calls us evil, it's, it's kind of, I guess it's, you know, it's such a loaded term, I guess, but it's, you know, most of us would deny that we're evil. So it's pretty smart to rename it into something that we can all see and we all know that our greed, hate, and delusion is all mixed up with other stuff, you know. Uh, we can hate somebody one day and love them the next, you know, it happens all the time. And so it's all mixed up with all our stuff, you know, and um, so it's helpful to see the, the components of evil and the, to understand that these all of us are potential um, 
Putin. All of us are a potential Trump. We, we, could, we could be, we're no different. Um, so let's see, one other point that I wanted to make is, um, you know, the whole world is busy now hating Putin. But hating anybody is pretty much a waste of our energy. It's not, uh, it's not helpful and it's really harmful, really. So let's not waste our time hating Putin. This unmanaged hate paralyzes us and it wastes our energy. If we want peace, then we must be peace. And when we talk about all the horrors that are happening in Ukraine, we must not forget what is also happening to the Russian soldiers as well. Remember them too. For in war, there are no unwounded soldiers. All these wounded soldiers in Ukraine and in Russia are gonna take their wounds home and they're gonna pass the trauma down for generations. Is this what we want for our world? So I'll just close with a, a quote from Claude Anshin Thomas. When he was asked how to support returned veterans, he responded, wake up to the roots of war in yourself and allow them to be your teacher. We can't really do anything for veterans, not really, unless they ask us, and they, unless they want help. But we can't hear what they're saying. We can't hear what people are saying unless we're willing to wake up to our conditioning. Because it was my conditioning, it was the karma that I inherited and then the karma that I was creating that kept me dead. Or kept me deaf, not dead, deaf. I couldn't hear. I didn't have the gift of Avalokitesvara or Kanzian, Bodhisattva. I didn't have the gift of hearing. I couldn't hear the sounds of the world. So that's all I have to say. Uh, I, uh, I guess we could do the chant and then if anybody has anything they'd like to say, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. May our intentions
And so I wonder if it might be good if we give a little bit of time to that side also. But I'm just, do you have any insights onto that of, from your study? Obviously, it was very deep. Kind of Gandhi's idea that we basically are nonviolent, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, um, and there's lots of, maybe just to add another perspective. Yeah, I, I'm... I'm at a little bit of a loss for words, but um, um, I mean, of course, I think most anybody who practices nonviolence has to look at their own, you know, their own violent, uh, violent tendencies. But I do agree, of course, we are, I think, at, at our very core, is we are all wisdom and compassion. And um, we obfuscate that, of course, with um, uh, with our, our ego leads us someplace different. So until we can sit and look deeply into ourselves and get to know this this wisdom and compassion, um, without doing that, we have so frequently are led by our, our karma. You know, our karma is pretty powerful, right? I mean, we feel it pulling at us all the time to do things that might not be helpful, the things that we think we need to do from our conditioning. I don't know. Anybody else like to speak to that? Oh, oh yeah, Drew. Yeah, I, I was going to share one experience that I had in um, last May. This would have been one of the first weekends or two I actually lived in Austin. Uh, at that point in time, May 2021, uh, Israel was having a, uh, the, yeah, the uh, government of Israel was uh, bombing uh, Gaza and quite heavily. And uh, there, were, there was a protest uh, around the Texas state capitol that I went to. Um, and it, it was a pretty large turnout, around a thousand people uh, circumambulating the capital, and uh, there was chanting together, there, was, there were drums, and uh, so we circled the capital once, and then when we returned to the front, the front facade on Congress, there was a group of maybe 20 or 30 uh, anti-mask, anti-vax protesters who, of course, uh, probably also like Trump supporters or whatever, and immediately uh, I noticed the way that the, um, the atmosphere of that chanting and drumming became a lot more dualistic itself. It was more like chanting at like drumming at these uh, presumed right-wing Trump, Trump supporters. And it, yeah, it, the vibe started to feel a lot less comfortable and good for me and felt a lot more like another mini, miniature iteration of some sort of uh, tribal warfare. <laughs> and yeah, they had very loud speakers were trying to drown us out. Like the drummers were trying to like it was just a game of who could be the louder side, literally. And uh, I just was kind of, I, I was honestly 
uh, disappointed to see that happen. And so, but I, I just went up to these Trump supporters and I just started shaking their hands oh. one by one. And then there was one person who, he had these, uh, yeah, he, he honestly, like, if you just try to imagine, like, some tough, macho, like, right-wing guy, like, like, uh, like sunglasses and like trucker hat and like giant tattoos and like very big and muscly. Uh, I, I put my hand up to him and he went, oh, you probably have toxins on your hand. <laughs> and then he just like waited a second and he was like, wait, you're just trying to spread the love, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, yeah, and then he was like happy to share. Oh, he wasn't hand. being sarcastic. He he well, loved it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, the, the wow. First comment, yeah, yeah. When he said that, he, that was a sincere. Like, oh, you're just trying to spread the love, aren't you? And yeah, he was genuinely happy to shake my hand. And uh, yeah, I yeah, for me that really shows like just being able to share like one kind word, one kind interaction. I think really is possible all the time and can have effects that are really heartfelt. And uh, yeah, I, I do view that nonviolence as like a real possibility. And that was one beautiful instance. Wow, that is such an inspirational story. <laughs> very, very wonderful, yeah, yeah. Manisha. Thank you so much, Pat. It's so wonderful having you for sharing your your peace and essence with us. And this topic is so important and so hard to listen to the stories of suffering. And really difficult. And um, I just have so much to say on this topic, which I'm not going to rant on about right now. Um, you know, just like our addiction to the media, just like one of my pet peeves of progressives that just like hate all Republicans, lots of my friends. Um, I have a lot of difficulty with this notion of like Trump and Putin being the same as me, because I think I've been reading a lot about narcissism, and I think that there are certain people who have an extremely difficult time with change. Um, though even in my own family, one of those people had a stroke and their personality didn't change and they could no longer speak, you know, <laughs> better for everybody. Um, but I, <laughs> so I guess like in my practice, I mean like since I've been three years old, I've been, you know, passionately trying to build world peace. and. I think I've recently become aware of like my efforts to change the world kind of being a little bit ego-based. Um, and that actually what the wisest people have always been telling me is like, it really starts within that inner peace and then things flow from that. And then like people are like excited about Ukraine, but like not about their local community, like what's going on right here. So anyway, my question uh, is like, so I think I'm, I've been trying to practice with like, who are the people in my life who have the most difficulty extending compassion to? Like for me, it's not Putin or Trump, like that I can do, um, but it's like my father and my stepfather who are, like, I mean both, I mean I think I can have compassion because in terms of their mental health, obviously there's some like really deep issues with autism, racism, 
sister-in-law who uh, was very unpleasant to be around and I mean I would go without seeing her for six months and I'd see her and oh it's so great to see you and she'd just stand there and not say anything and she, she'd say whatever she thought uh, uh, you know whatever ugly thought came through her mind she'd just say it and you know I, I felt hatred for her I will admit I really just I hated her and then I found out that uh, and I didn't realize this, that she was mentally ill. And as soon as I heard that she was mentally ill, I completely stopped hating her, you know? I mean, it was like everything was so different. And, yeah, I mean, God, and aren't we all a little mentally ill, you know? I mean, when you see you know, people that act in a very um, sociopathic kind of way, I mean... Um, yeah, I don't know. I believe what Tia Strozer used to say that everybody is doing the best they can, you know, and with what they have and what their little viewpoint is. And I, I do believe that. So. Thank you. Oh, did, yes? Did somebody? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, you get your hand raised. I'm sorry. I'm not. Yeah. Yes, Karen.
20 years, um, there was no awareness about those veterans, I think. And, and that really changed. And I think it made a huge difference in how veterans who came back from Iraq and Afghanistan were treated. Still not great. Um, we have, you know, there's still a lot of problems we have. And, and as you said, anybody coming back from war is going to have these terrible um, traumas. But um, to me, that's an example of, well, how do you do nonviolence? Well, he did that work, and he had, you know, by doing his own work and just sharing it, and Thich Han doing his work, um, they, they made huge changes, I think, in, in me, certainly, in how I saw Vietnam veterans and how I saw the past, my own past, and in how I felt about my awareness about veterans in the, you know, after that time. During that, so that was just my thought about that. Since I feel like, boy, I've watched this whole thing, you know, from the 1970s, and anyway, that's my thought. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, yeah, it's so easy for me to go to a place and say, oh, what can we do? Just nothing, you know, and that's that's very helpful for me. Yeah. Well, I have uh, uh, something I've been trying to work with when I have my war-like part come up in me. Uh, I try to tell myself when I see images of violence on TV, I remind myself, this is a we problem. It's not their problem. It's our, it's our problem. And that makes me accountable. Um, and then additionally, I just want to encourage people that are promoting nonviolence to stand strong because there's a lot of people trying, that good intention people who are really promoting violence as a solution. And I think it's really hard to stand up and say, no, we need a nonviolent solution. Because mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a lot more people, I think, that want a violent solution. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's really hard, like to say, yeah, in front of people that, or just say, please don't hate Trump. <laughs> you know? It's hard to say that when people don't want to hear. They think you're saying. No. Thank you. I, I want to thank you for taking the seat and saying something from the teacher seat. Um, because I've been thinking about it for weeks. Like, should we say something? What should we as a community do? Even a ritual. Yeah. And, you know, when we grappled with this in my old temple and one of the priests said, you know, there's some disaster every single day, whether we know about it or not. People are dying in terrible ways. The environment is suffering in terrible ways. Our fellow beings are suffering in terrible ways. And Ukraine, brings it to us because of the media and because of you know the, the Western-facing response to this. But Yemen, you know, for example, all sorts of places in the world in the past and in the present, there's war. So thank you for reminding us that there's always war. And there was, at Dogen's time, there was war. You know, temp temp temples, 
were warring with each other. Different sects of Buddhism were like burning each other out. Like amazing. So it is a condition that we will, as human beings, I think, this violence, this, this defensiveness also that we have. Um, I, I want to bring up a, just one, I could say a lot. My father was a veteran. He fought in the Second World War. And uh, during the 60s, he had a real, a lot of difficulty with the Vietnam War protests. And um, one time he totally surprised me. He said, everybody thinks this was a good war, but we had no choice. Mm. Like the people mm. who fled the country, burned their draft cards, went to Canada. He had, he couldn't, he said, this wasn't easy for us. It looked like a good war, but it wasn't easy for us. I didn't know that side of him. Mm-hmm. You know, so everyone is affected, as you say. Um, mm. But I want to just bring up one quick story. I'll try to say it quickly. Um, there was a big discussion recently um, among Soto Zen priests about uh, whether we should uh, make a vow not to own or use arms, firearms in particular. Mm-hmm. And I was astounded by the discussion that came up because some people say, like, well, this is totally self-evident, right? We shouldn't, we shouldn't carry guns, we shouldn't own guns, we shouldn't fire guns. And there were, it turns out, a number of people who were ordained priests and some of them teachers who owned guns and for self-defense because they lived alone. Some of them were women. And they lived alone and they felt they needed a gun. Um, some lived, you know, out in the country and they had, they sometimes needed a gun to put down an animal or... Anyway, it was a very, it was an amazing discussion, and one Japanese priest said, we need to disarm our minds, you know, we need to, without taking a stand about whether self-defense was appropriate or not, you know, just to say, who is defending against whom? Like, what is this division? So I think that is pointing in some of the ways, like this, this dividing all the time, you know, mm-hmm. even when your life is at stake, and um, one priest whom we all know, I won't name the person, said that they would rather lose their own life than take the life of another being. Mm-hmm. And that was their position. Not mm-hmm. that it, that was a recommendation for everyone, but I thought that really radical disarm yourself, disarm your inmost self, and let the wisdom and compassion be the, come to the forefront shake the hand of the scariest person in front of the Capitol, you know, just be peace. Be peace. what we can do. It's what we can do. And be grateful that we're not in a war zone. But the war is not not about us either. And it does affect us, whether we are aware of it or not. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for sharing their experience. Catherine. Did Claude Thomas have any insight as to how to avoid war? Hmm. Not that I know of. Okay. I mean, other than just what we radiate. Yeah. <clears throat> he came to Chapel Hill's Center, too. Oh, he did. Yeah. Was yeah. Yeah. In, in was 2000, high. back then? Yeah. Oh, cool. Like 50 or 75 people, totally, you know, like, not a word, just listening to him and taking him in. He, he walked there from somewhere. I forget oh, where. Yeah. He was doing a walking pilgrimage. Jerry. Uh, so if you listen to podcasts, there's one called 10% Happier. Oh, yeah. Dan yeah. Harris. 
Oh yeah. And this week he interviews Thomas. And so oh, he interviewed Thomas. Yes. This, oh. And, and cool. he does talk about um, the war that's happening right now and his views on it. And what you're saying is exactly what he said. Well, I don't know what to do about it, but I know not to be violent. Oh, I'll be sure and catch that. children who identify ways that wouldn't be safe in a small town in outside of you know outside of a big city um, and but it really bothered me that I was constructing this and um, so uh, I thought about what we talked about last week which is what's the most important thing and the, the importance of asking the question what's the most important thing and the thing that came to my mind as we were in this small town was to see the Buddha nature in all people. And um, I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means to see the Buddha nature in people, but I tried and it, it helped me remove this wall that was being built up. And then I also had an opportunity to talk to my kids about it. Um, and I, I hope that it, it connected with them in some way. But, um, so a question I have, um, and it's kind of a rhetorical question, um, and maybe it inspires some thoughts, is um, what does it mean to see the Buddha nature in someone? Does it mean that I'm their friend? Does it mean that I trust them? Does it mean that I connect with them? Does it mean uh, that I have to go shake their hand in a really maybe unsafe, dichotomous <laughs> situation? What does it mean? I don't know what it means, but that is a question for me. What does it mean to see the Buddha nature in all people? I think to believe in the Buddha nature of all people is really important because when you treat somebody like they are uh, an innately wise and compassionate person, they will act that way. It's really amazing. You know, if you treat them like, I mean, you know, like you trust them. I mean, you trust them to be good people. I mean, I mean you trust that they can be good people, um, that they have that ability. and. I don't know, if you treat people like they trust you, usually they're trustworthy. They rise to the occasion. I, I, I don't know, it's been my experience. Uh, you know, I mean, that doesn't mean you should um, buy a house from them or something. I mean, you, you know, it could be reasonable, but 
was that, was that helpful? Or, you know. Did I see any? Oh, geez. Jacob. Uh, yeah, I was um, that sparked something from what y'all were saying. Um, I think another way to, I've, I've struggled with that a lot, you know, like with my forebearers and different viewpoints, and you see somebody who, you find yourself, you don't even know when it started, but you just find yourself thinking, you know, how do I overcome this person or this viewpoint? And you slowly understand that, like you said earlier, everybody's kind of, you kind of, there's a sense in which people are trying to do the best they can. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. And so there's an unspoken assumption when you look at people like they're not being good. You don't know where that assumption started, but it's an unspoken assumption that they somehow are doing something that you wouldn't do, <laughs> given the circumstances, you know. Um, but I, I'm so guilty of this, it's insane, you know. Um, but, uh, but then it's kind of like, well, it's like there's no way that person knows the effect that they're having because right. that would be giving them way too much credit. You know what I mean? Because think about yourself. Like When you offend people, you're like, oh my God, there's, I had no idea that I was gonna offend that person that way. But apparently, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it's, uh, it kind of puts into perspective how people are going about their thing, you know? And no one wants to be affecting people in that way, despite how much it might look like. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so to me, I've kind of thought about this kind of phenomenology of that, like where is there, does anybody ever mean anything completely personally? You know what I mean? Like, right. There's right. almost like this field that we all assume exists that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. kind of, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And exactly. um, uh, I don't know what made me think about that because uh, it's kind of like the Four Agreements guy, Don Miguel Ruiz. Just taking things personally, and and, and the pal, you can't do that. Yeah, that's a wonderful point to make. Yeah. But also, they that, that kind of phrase you hear: "See yourself in others." You know, which to me that didn't make sense for a long time. And I, I'm not saying it fully does now, but that kind of similar to what you're talking about: seeing Buddha nature and other people is kind of like seeing yourself and others, kind of. Thank you, Jacob. I guess it's a good time to, to end. So, should we get tea and cookies? I think there are tea and cookies. All right. There's some tea and cookie buddies up as an armistice. <laughs> <laughs> the old tea and cookie crew is getting back together again.